1: Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. I have with me today nationally known author and teacher, Jen Wilkin. She's the author of uh, several books, Women of the Word, How to Study the Bible with Both Our Hearts and Minds, None Like Him, Ten Ways God is Different from Us, and Why That's a Good Thing, and The Sermon on the Mount, not the actual Sermon on the Mount, but a book about the Sermon on the Mount called The Sermon on the Mount, and see someone that everything I read by Jen Wilkin not only equips me better, but provokes me to, to think and to pray and to move forward in all sorts of ways. She has a column in Christianity Today, and I just uh, really commend the stuff that she does to you. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, find it, and, uh, and you'll benefit from it. Jen, thanks for being with me today.
2: Thank you so much for having me on.
1: You know, sometimes I feel guilty because I feel like I'm the only one that I know of in ministry who has not used The phrase, I really married up. (laughs) And it's not, I haven't used the phrase because it's not true, because certainly my wife is unbelievable. uh, But I haven't used it because it's always felt to me kind of condescending. It's the sort of thing that I've never heard a woman say about her husband But we'll often hear husbands saying that about their wives, and that's just one example. I mean, I I can think of uh, all kinds of times where there's been one woman on the platform with a group of men, and someone will make a remark about a, a Rose among the thorns, or you know that that sort of thing. Do you think it's the case that sometimes in our churches we have these sort of subtle, condescending ways that we that we talk about women, particularly?
2: Yeah, I think I think it's well intentioned. Like when I hear something like that, I never assume that someone woke up that morning thinking, "Now, how can I keep the woman down?" Mm-hmm, you know, right. I mean, it's never anything like that. Uh, certainly. But I, I do think that we can sometimes speak in ways that we intend to be honoring, but they end up sounding more like overcompensating uh, hmm. for some underlying concern that maybe the women don't feel valued or uh, or something like that. But I, again, I always assume that it's, it's well-intended.
1: You know, when we look at the church, it seems to me that in some ways women within conservative evangelical churches don't seem to be as mobilized as in previous times in church history. Uh, when, when we think about, uh, even when women didn't have as high a place in society, as they have now. We had women who were actively involved in leading missions movements and and, in all sorts of of ways that it seems to me we don't see as much uh, now. And maybe that's just in in my corner of the world. Why is that the case? And if it is, how can we we correct it?
2: Well, I'm in your corner of the world. And so I would say that that's probably an accurate statement. And I think that uh, probably what is driving that is We have often functioned in the church with how we deal with women in the last 20 years or so, more um, like a backlash position. We Mm -hmm. developed sort of a fear of anything that sounded or looked vaguely like feminism and um, began to become uh, extremely cautious about what roles we placed women in and Mm -hmm. what responsibilities we gave them and even resulted, I would say, in some pretty narrow definitions of, of what leadership is or who can lead and who should lead. and. And so I think we're still dealing with some of the the fallout from that, which in some cases has meant that um, places outside the church have perhaps been more open handed toward women in leadership than the church itself has been. But what I was what I'm hoping to see, and what I think is already beginning to happen many places, is that we would recapture a vision for men and women partnering in ministry together. Even the, the language that the New Testament applies to the church is familial language, mm-hmm. and a family has. Uh, brothers and sisters, and it has fathers, and it has mothers. And so I would love for the church to begin to look more like a family that has uh, both parents in the home uh, functioning in roles of leadership and nurturing.
1: You know, one of the things that I'm convinced of and, ha- and have been uh, for all of my ministry, but increasingly so, is that whenever there's a truth that God gives to us, there's not just one error. That deviates from that. There are typically uh, at least two on either side of that truth. And I think that you're right. One of the things that we've seen when it comes to biblical ideals and biblical pictures of, of manhood and womanhood is that, on the one hand, you have the, the sort of uh, feminism that erases those uh, good creational differences. But on the other hand, I think we can have a hyper complementarianism. And I say this as a convinced complementarian that wants to say, in order to protect and make sure that we don't fall into the, the ditch of uh, feminism, we're going to put all of these protective hedges so that we don't get anywhere close to uh, a, a place where there's a, a problem area. And so I think I think you're right about that sense of, of backlash. And you've written about this, uh, even in terms of the I think you said the word ghosts, uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the, sorts of, uh, the sorts of ideas of women that can be scary uh, sometimes to men who are in leadership uh, within, within the church. What, what do you mean by that, the ghosts?
2: Well, you know, I've even heard from, from those who are seminary graduates that they were instructed in seminary in, in different times to, to, to be wary of contact with women. And, um, yeah, I grew up with four brothers and a dad who loved me and Jeff, you know, loves me and sees me, um, as his peer. And, and so it, it was unexpected for me to encounter those kinds of things in the church because I hadn't encountered them in my primary relationships with men. And I was, I was used to being just treated as though I was not a threat. Uh, and, and so, um, I'm a fairly, you know, outspoken person. I have that personality that probably tends to get pegged as, "Oh, here comes trouble," uh, and so, and so it was. Just, I do so, too just,
1: sometimes. Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: so it was a surprise to me though, because what had been valued when I was in the workplace uh, was somehow not necessarily valued in the church. And, and so then in thinking about it further and then hearing, oh no, no, this is actually um, something, it's a, it's a belief system that has been uh, rewarded and cultivated at times among men who are in ministry that women are, are something to be cautious around. And then it did result in, in, in many ministry structures being formed around a process of erring on the side of caution at every mm-hmm. turn. And uh, I think I said in that piece, it's important to note that when we err on the side of, when we consistently err on the side of caution, we consistently err. Uh, we are we are uh, operating then from a paradigm of fear instead of from a paradigm, again, of brother-sisterly partnership. And um, fear doesn't tend to be a good recipe for ministry. There's been actually a lot of really interesting stuff written around, uh, in particular, male-female relationships. Within ministry settings, and um, how the more forbidden you make them, the more you heighten hmm. um, the sort of um, tension around those relationships, and that. Um, and I think of it even in terms of the way that we dealt with sibling um, relations in my home. I have two boys and two girls, and if you were not getting along with a sibling, we did not separate you. We put you together and gave you a task to yeah. do. And yet in the church, we tend to have a, let's just keep them separate so that there aren't any issues. And I think many times we have had a greater fear of adultery than we have had of the fear of men and women not fulfilling the cultural mandate as it's given to both of them.
1: Well, what would you say, though, to to someone who would say, yes, but— We have had just tremendous problems within the church, and we do know that there's a good created um, longing for one flesh union meant to be expressed in marriage that the devil distorts. And so there are some, some real dangers there. And a lot of the times when we have seen these sorts of falls, they've happened in terms of ministry together, whether it's in terms of yeah. one-on-one counseling or something uh, that that has gone awry. So how would you say, hey, don't err on the side of fear, but at the same time, make sure that there there is a sense of recognizing there can be a different dynamic here that could be dangerous?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, like you wouldn't want to, if you recognize one problem, what you don't want to do is overcorrect for the yeah. problem, right? Like, and it, And we don't want to be foolish. We do want to be wise. And a lot of that, but I think what we've done is we have made one size fits all rules for every relationship when in reality, each relationship um, is, is different because it's two different individuals who are in that relationship. And so when you're trying to gauge, okay, what is my ability to have relationships Friendship level relationships with other uh, people of the opposite sex I'm in ministry with, you have to first say, well, how healthy is my marriage? Right. Mm-hmm. And then you need to say, um, this person who I'm working with, how, how strong does their, um, marriage seem to be? How vulnerable are they in this, in this regard? How vulnerable am I? What's my history of, of strength in these relationships? And, and you've got to have a great deal of honesty with yourself about, uh, about how, how safe it is to even move into even low-level friendship with someone, depending on who the person is. But as with friendships between people of the same gender, um, you know, like a, two, two men who are friends, over time you learn which friendships you can trust and which friendships you can't trust. And I would say that the same can be said to be true of male-female interactions. Um, but again, obviously, you're going to be cautious for a couple of reasons. Because there can be the sexual component, although arguably there can be a sexual component in same gender friendships as well. And then secondly, um, because we cannot live as though we exist in a vacuum. There are, uh, cultural pressures around this and there are subcultural pressures around this that are going to dictate the way that we behave wisely in these relationships. So just because I could go have coffee with Someone who is not my spouse in a highly public place where there are tons of other people there and nothing would be questioned doesn't mean that I should.
1: Hmm. Right? Yeah. You know, I get a lot of uh, books sent to me, as I'm, as I'm sure you do too, from publishers. And one of the things that I've noticed is books that are geared toward men or geared toward uh, just generic readers uh, tend to be very different than the books that I get for the most part <laughs> that are geared toward women. And I can even just tell just by looking at usually the, the cover uh, of the right. book that comes in. And usually, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's just the sorts of things that I'm seeing, but with some key exceptions, uh, and you're one of them and, and others are, are people that, that various people would know, with some exceptions, a lot of the material directed toward women is uh, relational, has to do with with just one or two specific areas of life, which are important and significant, but usually not geared toward um, theology or Bible knowledge. Again, I think you're an exception, Beth Moore is an exception, some others, but for the most part, not geared toward that. Why?
2: Well, I would argue probably that it's a symptom of this men are from Mars, women are from Venus mentality that we've had within the church. Mm. Um, so, like, if you had the courage to crack open one of these books, it looks like they painted the front cover with estrogen. <laughs> um, you know, if you have the courage to even look in there, you're going to look at that and be like, this is incomprehensible to me. And then you're going to draw one of two conclusions. You're either— going to think, uh, you know, um, well, I guess this is just what women want. This is what, you know, this is the way that they're wired. Yeah. Or you might think, oh, this is all that women can handle. You know, I mean, it kind of depends on where you're coming from. But the command for us to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength is not gender specific. It's not, hey, man, you love God with your mind. Women, you love Him with your feelings. You know, these are the gifts we bring to the church. I, I will stand and give an account to God for how well I have loved Him with my mind, not not Doctor Moore's mind, not Matt Chandler's mind, my mind, not Beth Moore's mind. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I need to, I need to have a thinking faith as a woman who is a follower of Christ. And so, what has happened over time is we have resourced women almost entirely at the feelings level for about the last twenty years. Uh, and so, women uh, when they are faced with an, a a thought level challenge to their faith, it throws them into complete crisis. They're not equipped to to deal with it. And not only that, but because there is so much uh, polarization, even within church subculture, we think we are straight ticket voters with, with one teacher versus another. And so I either have to love every single thing that Matt Chandler says, or he's a false teacher. Yeah. And, and, and so women in particular are ill-equipped to discern between what is uh, is first level doctrine, what is second level, and then to know, uh, well, so do I need to reject everything this person says? Or can I say I like these things and not these things? Uh, And then you combine that with there is a tendency among women to seek consensus and collaborate. Mm -hmm. And so um, anyone who critiques something that a woman has written can be perceived to be outside the herd a little bit. Mm. So I would say that even within women's circles, there is a danger to any woman who says, I need to raise my voice and critique against what another woman has written. So some of these resources that are written perhaps at a level that doesn't honor the intellectual capacity of women sort of never meet with a with a critique that would help us to see more clearly toward other things.
1: Yeah, and it seems like uh, the exact opposite. I think you're right with this men are from Mars, women are from Venus dynamic. When I look at things that are directed primarily toward men, and I think this is starting to change, but for a long time, it has been hyper warrior spirit, hyper competitive, um, which I think kind of feeds into the sort of um, masculinity as velocity Sort of mentality that's that's ending up with a lot of people just completely burned out and devastated when they get to the middle of their lives and there's nothing else there.
2: Right.
1: You know, when you think about uh, at the at the local church level, maybe if we have somebody who's listening to this and she's in a local church and the local church just has not had any emphasis on genuine Bible teaching for and by women. Uh, what what could someone do to to start to see that change? Would you say, well, you just need to go find another church, or <laughs> how do you do that?
2: Uh, no, I would not urge you to leave your church. Uh, that that to me is a is a as a last resort measure, but. Mm-hmm. I would say that if you are someone who um, feels drawn to lead something like this, that you should, you know, first obviously approach your leadership and say, this is something I would like to do. What I tell women who are in churches where they say, hey, everything we're doing is topical or it's all feelings related. Um, I think the first thought can be, let's just stop doing all of that and we're just going to do like hardcore inductive Bible study all the time. And I would say that's probably not the best answer. It's yeah. better to begin doing this foundational piece uh, and let the other things continue. And, and and getting women to invest in this foundational piece of, of learning line by line takes some time. Uh, and it starts with two or three women, and then they catch fire, and then they invite their friends, and then those women catch fire. And so it's a slow boil Mm -hmm. And uh, that's okay. It needs to be seen as something that you're going to build into your church over the long term. And it can be difficult if you're in a church that overall does not value that kind of study. And it can also be difficult because as church structures have become more and more uh, organic and decentralized, it's harder and harder to find environments that are dedicated to just the learning of scripture. And so there may be some mechanical difficulties in terms of implementing something like this. I joke that at the village with the classes that I'm responsible for that we're retrofitting Sunday school,
0: Mm -hmm. but
2: that is a lot of what we're doing. Uh, We're trying to create structured places where this kind of learning can take place because it's just not likely to take place in a home group setting uh, home group is great at community, but it's less good at having a structured approach to um, opening up the scriptures and, and and having a thought level discussion around the text. Hmm. So I would urge women at the local level to seek buy in from their leadership, but in many cases they may get a blank stare. It's just something that's kind of fallen fallen off of the radar a yeah. lot of places, and if that's the case. Gather some women in your home and and get a good resource and just begin to do the work and and trust that the Lord's going to yield a harvest on that.
1: You know, one of the things that I've noticed, whether it applies to orphan care ministry, whether it applies to any number of things I've been involved in, when you have people who come to their church leadership and say, we have this deficiency, you fix it. Yeah. There's typically not a good response because the church <laughs> right. leadership is already doing. But if you have a group of people coming saying, hey, God has laid this on our heart. We're not exactly sure what it's going to look like, but will you support right. us as we attempt to equip the rest of them? There usually is a very good response to that.
2: A willingness, yes. to partner, yeah. yes.
1: Well, thank you, Jen Wilkin, for being with us today. And I, I recommend to all of you, if you're not familiar with Jen Wilkin's uh, stuff, uh, Google her and get it. And one of the things that I really appreciate about Jen's work is that we talked about overreaction here. And I think sometimes when someone is a pioneer and, and moving in, uh, in some directions that have been deficient for a while, one of the things that you could easily do is to say, I want to be super cerebral to make sure that I stay far away and so I'm just going to stand up and present the omniscience of God in the most arid and abstract sort of way and what she does is to talk about the omniscience of God and to do that in a way that is able to be applicable to everyday lives as well and so that's a good sort of model for all of us men and women to follow. So Jen Wilkin, thanks for being with us today.
2: Thanks, it was my pleasure.